level of courage it takes for a single moment to be with overwhelming or painful feeling is extraordinary. One needs tremendous courage to do this work. Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Simon Weitzman. Simon is director and founding member of the Institute for Mindfulness South Africa, a nonprofit organization that's committed to offering mindfulness-based programs in a South African context. He's also the program director of a mindfulness-based program for health professionals at Stellenbosch University's medical school, and he's been a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher for the last 20 years. Simon brings a very unique perspective to the conversation around trauma and mindfulness. He's convened two international conferences on mindfulness in South Africa, and he's done so in a way that really addresses trauma, both historically around apartheid, but also in a modern day context. In this conversation, we discuss the ongoing impact of apartheid in South Africa and how mindfulness practice can increase our capacity to face historical trauma, the importance of elderhood in contemplative and trauma healing spaces, the power of non-judgmental awareness in clinical work, and ultimately the reason that trauma-sensitive mindfulness is so important in a South African context. This was a powerful conversation that captured many of the principles around trauma-sensitive mindfulness that we've been covering on this podcast for the last year and a half. It's also with someone who's clearly thought very deeply about this topic, and I really enjoyed the chance to be in a collaborative conversation with Simon. So without further delay, here's Simon Weitzman. I'm here with Simon Weitzman. Thank you so much, Simon, for coming on the podcast. Mm. Lovely to be with you, David. So I will have given a little bit of an intro, just describing some of the data points about where you spent your time. But just as we wade into the conversation, maybe we could start with what would you like people to know about you? And I know you have a long, a long history inside of mindfulness and medical work, but what are some headlines along the way? What would you want us to know? Well, there's been like a, an interweaving, I think, over many years of, of a number of threads, which all seem to come together around some quality of healing. And uh, whether that's in the form of medicine or or psychotherapy or mindfulness or more generally contemplative practices, I often joke to myself that I kind of use myself as a guinea pig for the work that I do, um, which is both a, a kind of practical reality and also an ethical reality of I'd rather be exploring and experimenting and discovering about these forms and methodologies with myself and then bringing that into the domain, whether it's with patients or students or the general public. So it's actually beautiful. It really is quite a beautiful weave. And of course, I I couldn't have imagined when I started out as an eight-year-old wanting to be a doctor. What was it? What did you call it? H O? An eight year old. Oh, an eight year old. <laughs> an eight year old. I was like, yeah, I want to be a doctor, and and um, wow. as only eight year olds could, like a complete fantasy about what it actually meant to to be a, a doctor. But I, some part of me knew even then that I that 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 was the path I I wanted to take, and then actually studying and training, and then beginning to practice as a as a medical doctor. And did you have a specialty? 
No, just stayed in a general practice. We've got a particularly interesting system in the South Africa, which is similar to the UK, where you can work in various specialties without becoming a registrar or residence. I worked as a medical officer in emergency medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, both here and in the UK. And that formed the basis for my moving into general practice, although that was never my main interest. Um, having discovered that there actually was a mind-body connection early on in my clinical career, once I completed my training and became completely compelled and fascinated with, with the possibility that the mind and the body were interacting in some mysterious way. And it was that burst of information that was coming out of some of the top research universities around psychoneuroimmunology and stress and so forth that I happened to hit that wave um, at, at the time of my clinical career starting. So there was this coming together, although I felt like I was living a parallel life, practicing clinical medicine, and then exploring these ways in which the mind and body were in conversation with each other. And there were some real standout characters, personalities, and, and learnings that set the kind of trajectory. I think mm. probably right at the get-go, Deepak Chopra's book, Quantum Healing, really opened my opened my eyes and my ears and my heart to the possibility that there was a there was a mind-body connect and all of this was resting in consciousness. Now, mm. I didn't fully understand, I still, don't still fully understand what that means. But at the time, there was a recognition, you know, when there's a sense of recognition without understanding. Mm -hmm. More like Absolutely. a familiarity at some deeper part. And then, you know, the, the research that Candace Pert was doing um, on neuropeptides and neuropeptides, receptors. Right. Yeah, they really spoke to me, the, the scientist part of my mind. Mm. Um, and I thought, oh, hold on a minute. There's, there's a way that this bridge between body and mind and mind-body can actually allow me to stay within um, a science domain without wafting off too far into the perimeter. And, and, and I just immersed myself and it was deeply fascinating. And of course, it came at the same time with a, um, a realization that my own subjective experience, what was occurring within me, required uh, a lot of work. Um, so while I was exploring this on the outside, um, took in, took the plunge of move, moving towards psychotherapy for myself and it started a contemplative meditative practice, which is both of which have continued to this day about 30 years later. So I've taken a deep dive into myself at the same time of taking a deep dive into these ways in which the mind and the body um, are in conversation with each other in service of healing. So you're someone who, I mean, this is why I was excited to talk to you here in the podcast is, you know, the podcast was is trying to really bridge the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, trauma. And here you are really having been at the forefront of a bunch of different areas around um, research, meditation, medicine, different contemplative practices, psychotherapy, trauma. So I'm curious, what is your, if we just dive into it, what's your assessment right now of the current state, either um, of the field, the fields that you're in, um, and also how that might connect to, to your location and, and the country that you're in? I think the, the, the biggest shift is, is the relationship between stress and trauma. Mm. And... and um, where I've coming to understand this now is that stress really is describing neurophysiology and neurophysiological processes. 
um, and neuropathophysiological processes where, where, where that becomes maladaptive. I, I really I was thinking a lot about this relationship. And when I hear the word trauma now and I hear the word stress, it's the word trauma that has the resonance but also has the impact. It's as if it's got it's got like a feeling quality which is much more aligned with the truth of my experience and also feels much more honest if I'm if if I if I could be so honest to say that it, it's like oh yeah traumatization that feels true and if I observe um, patients in practice or students in trainings or participants in mindfulness-based courses that there's a resonance and an impact there so I, my sense is that the current iteration and expression is this a growing understanding that traumatization is really what we're talking about. And the word stress is much more referring to brain-body processes and also doesn't seem to encapsulate sufficiently the impact and the consequences of that impact um, of micro and macro trauma on the individual and the collective level. Um, of course, I'm checking my own bias here because, uh, I mean, to a large degree through your work, but also through the, the other thought leaders in this field, I'm diving deeply into this understanding again of trauma as if I understood it but realised I didn't and keep falling into the layers and textures of mm. what trauma is and traumatization, which is a word that I really can relate to. Um, so, how do you how do you relate to it? It makes it into something that is experiential and relational, versus stress, versus or, or even just the word trauma. The, the word I trauma see. feels like a noun. It feels like something static. Oh, it's trauma. Mm. Whereas traumatization feels like it's something that is occurring. It feels like something is alive and dynamic within me, within others, and between. So, if it feels like as as thought leaders have opened the path and I've followed along with that research and the clinic expression and the challenges, um, that is now the primary lens through which I'm looking. And of mm. course, because I'm looking through that lens, I'm seeing it everywhere. Yeah, right. So I'm, I'm checking my bias. Is it, is it everywhere? And, uh, or is it just that I'm perceiving it everywhere because I'm looking? And I think there's probably a bit of both. Yeah. But it's very difficult living in uh, in a country that I do in South Africa um, to not be uh, sensitized to trauma. Well, this is where you and I met. Um, and just for, for listeners who, of course, don't know the story, is that how many years ago would it have been now? Through two or three years? Three, three years or so. I think we, we met about three and a half years ago online. And I think the conference right. was, was um, two and a half years ago. So my memory of you reaching out was to say you were um, sort of lead of creating a, a conference in South Africa around mindfulness and the use of mindfulness and programs. And my memory of our conversation, as you said, um, as someone who is quite plugged into the individual and the collective stress and trauma that so many people are facing, I feel like uh, we cannot ethically put on a program that is bringing in so many different 
people inside of South Africa without having a really deep conversation around trauma and how it relates to mindfulness and meditation. So that was, that's how I remember meeting you. Uh, that was sort of our, uh, the beginning of our conversation. So could you, um, could you speak a little bit about the context um, in South Africa for those that aren't familiar? I have some familiarity having been there, but also even this last year, it seems like there's a lot happening in the collective and be curious, mm. just whatever you'd like to share. Yeah, I think I often like to think that South Africa's you know, particularly unique problems and challenges uh, socially, um, whereas I think it's an expression of, of general um, socio-political and economic issues, which occur to varying degrees within any country in the world and within groups. Um, there's something very potent about living in a country where apartness was policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's called apartheid, or it was called apartheid. But if you, that word is, is apartness, I mean, they made up a word which described the basis of suffering. And so not only was it policy, but it became internalized uh, and has become part of the matrix of of each individual um, who either grew up leading into that uh, entrenchment of apartheid or subsequently, or even those who... Um, were born after 1994 um, when we moved to a d- democratic dispensation. In terms of what Thomas Herbal talks about, you know, this collected and inherited epigenetic traumatization. So there's, it's not like apartness and separation is unique to South Africa, but the degree to which it was overtly created as a policy of the government of the day does give us an entree into understanding some of the very real-world consequences on an individual and collective level. And I, and I include here the people with white bodies who've borne the privilege of that system and the people born into black bodies who've borne the brunt of the um, disenfranchisement and um, impoverishment and uh, often degradation, humiliation that it came as well. And we, we're all bound into this dance, whether we like it or not. And so South Africa, kind of, um, you know, we talk a lot, of, a lot about embodiment in the field of mindfulness. In a way, it feels like South Africa embodies some of these issues in a way that other countries don't because it's so out front and centre. And part of the intention to have the conference um, in 2019, which is actually the second time we'd had an international conference in South Africa, was to position it with that in mind and as such to take that uh, implicit and explicit form of suffering but position it in a way that it could be held. And, And one of the main decisions we took was to was to have the conference at the cradle of humankind, which is one of the most extraordinary pieces of land anywhere in the world where some of the earliest human fossils have been found. And the conference center is literally built on the ground where those fossils are found. Uh, so we, we called the conference the ground beneath our feet because it was literally we were standing on the bones of our, of our ancestors 
And they were not just our ancestors here in South Africa, but the ancestors of all human beings. And so it felt appropriate to, to come to rest on that land, and which itself was quite evocative, which perhaps we can speak about. So to this embodiment of traumatization on the individual and collective level has a very particular quality uh, and valence um, here in South Africa, which I think, you know, there's a tremendous amount of healing that needs to be done, but there's also a tremendous amount that we can learn as a collective, which would contribute to the global conversation about healing. Hmm. One of my experiences of that conference and being there with such a diverse group of people, both internationally and then from within South Africa and Africa more generally, was the use of mindfulness practices in order to increase one's capacity to turn and face some of the, both the history and the embodied experience of a partness that I think you're speaking to here. It wasn't uh, in any way to, this is one thing I appreciated about the conference, it wasn't in any way to try to look on the bright side of anything. Quite the opposite, it was to really um, expand the capacity collectively. And gosh, I mean, there was moments where it was so challenging to be with some of the deep contradictions. I remember the first night um, getting there in the cradle of humankind, there was a big <clears throat> stencil on the wall that said something like, welcome, welcome home. We are all, we are all one. And this was coming at a moment where there was a deep conversation around difference and the ways that people were impacted differently individually or through social context. And so there was just these deep tension points uh, and mindfulness seemed to be providing a, an actual container to be with the, the the context of that moment without trying to skip over anything. It was very new for me. I, so I wonder if for you now, a couple of years out, just um, how you think about that experience and um, yeah, your reflections on it now. I still get very moved when I think about it. And um, there's something very powerful about walking into a, a building which has been made from the sand and the clay of that very ancient, ancient land where the first words you see are welcome home. Like it hits in a place in the body which is very difficult to articulate. And I think that there's still a deep and ongoing learning about what that conference represented. Uh, and it feels, uh, to be honest, like it's just a drop in the ocean of what is actually needed. But I suppose we have to start somewhere. And the, the standout thing at the moment for me is the idea of oneness and the actuality of oneness. And, and it's so easy for it to roll off the tongue. We are all one. And, and, the, and it's so easy for the mind to um, then easily dismiss difference. So I think I, I approach the subject with a tremendous amount of caution and sensitivity um, to the potential for the misunderstanding that arises out of language. I like the phrase eachness and suchness, which I think comes from the Buddhist lineage, that the individual and collectively there is, there is uh, this diversity of um, qualities, if you will, that um, makes up, you know, to use Desmond Tutu's famous phrase, the rainbow, 
in this case, a rainbow nation, but everywhere. But they are all different spectra of, uh, of light. So the colors are all spectra of white light. And, and so the oneness is the white light, but the, the rainbow colors are all magnificent um, and, and take away any one of them and, you know, it, it would be the poorer. So I think that, that that is something I'm really taking a deep dive into and, and trying to make sense of in both myself and, and the work that I do in the world. How to hold the actuality of non-separation the actuality of the experience of feeling separate and um, the qualities of eachness and suchness all in the, in the same kind of container, um, which is present moment itself, in which everything is held in a particular way. So there's, that, there's a lot of tension between those, but ultimately there's no tension between any of them. And I think those moments where we feel the dissipation of tension, we know we're, uh, I think we really know we're on the right track to healing. Mm. That was a, that was, there's a felt experience over those many days of what you just described, that was sort of tension and non-tension or an opening that could happen. It just seemed to flow as a, a thread through. I see you as someone who's, this inquiry you just described really informing the work you do quite practically in the world with clients, your family, in your leadership, uh, in research around mindfulness. And this is where I feel like you and I started a conversation around trauma-informed mindfulness and meditation. What would that look like? Mm. All the different contexts, who's teaching? Do you have any kind of practical examples of where would a trauma-informed mindfulness orientation, where have you seen it be useful? Or what is enlivening you? around this this inquiry right now in your work or practice? The short answer is I see it practical and useful everywhere. And, and more than that, I'd say essential. Um, and perhaps it's you've done this already, to be able to distinguish between tra- being trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive. It feels for me like everybody needs to be trauma-informed. And those of us working at the interface um, uh, with, with groups and individuals need to be trauma sensitive. And, and so the practices need to be um, infused with trauma sensitivity. Um, so I, I, don't, I can't see there's any place in which that's not relevant or necessary or even essential. Um, I think as I've, as I've become more immersed in, in the field, it's become more clear, more obvious that um, every single person uh, carries a degree of traumatization. And, and so the pragmatic consequence of that is to hold that in awareness with sensitivity. And I think the skill set is really a lifetime's work. You know, how to, and I think it, I wouldn't say it's easier in, with individual work, um, but I think there's a, a way of being able to work one on one in the development of relationship in a therapeutic space, which is different from a group where you have 50 people or 300 people or even more, um, where there's such a a kind of convergence of all different kinds of degrees of traumatization. Um, So the skill and the capacity to hold, um, and I'll draw us back to that comment for a moment, working on the collective, 
is, you know, as the conference progressed, the, the, the degree of emotion, of affect, of feeling in the room started to intensify. And the, the tension uh, between people and the intensity of the feeling started to really accentuate different uh, sources of conflict, um, different heritages and perceptions and experiences. And truth be told, there were two elements for me, and this really is a standout, is in order for that to have not collapsed the whole process into some kind of um, reenactment and re-traumatization, two things were present. One, the earth itself, just there was this, this ground which is sacred and solid and spacious and we, it's here. There's like a sense of imminence just in the earth itself. That was the one thing. And the other thing was the presence of wise elders who were able to, and it didn't need a lot of them, it just needed a few of them, who were able to really let the, the pain of all that emotional distress penetrate their hearts, be moved by it, but not reactive to it. And as such, hold a wide, wide, wide perspective on what was actually going on and what was needed. And that is to say, everybody experience was valid. And at the same time, there is more available. Um, and so that, is, that for me is a real standout. And the, 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 the presence of elders in our systems is essential for us to have wider capacity to contain what is essentially both strong bodily activation, strong emotional discharge, or defense against strong emotional discharge, and fixed thought forms which create divisive beliefs. So on a practical level, it's how to um, invite the elders into our spaces more and more. And then with that holding space, um, use the pragmatic skills of, you know, mindfulness is but one of them, to be able to work with um, relationality feeling and six thoughts in a way that moves moves us towards a kind of a, a subtle dissolution of separation rather than a reinforcement of it. Mm. That really resonates I've, when you said that about the two characteristics that were present in terms of elderhood and ground. You know, when I heard you say that, it almost makes me think about, I'm used to being in, what would it be, non-secular? That I always get them mixed up, where it's not into non-religious space, where there's not a, there's not necessarily a shared value. That non-secular, right? That would be secular, I think. Oh, that's right. I always yeah. get them. <laughs> get them I'm usually in, yeah, secular. Well, secular spaces generally are secular Buddhist spaces where there isn't necessarily a shared framework of understanding that can hold the bigger picture. And when you said that about ground and just the space itself. You're right. That did feel like there was something much deeper happening. And then elderhood, as you're as you're saying, you know, we've talked about this, but the window of tolerance is a, a big frame in the trauma-sensitive mindfulness work that I've been doing. And 
what I'm what I'm often interested in, both individually or collectively, is what are the factors or conditions that will support a widening of the window to support the integration of that which was too much to bear. And I I just got chills when you said that about elders that um, there was a deep sense of elderhood and and as you said not that you didn't need many. I had that visceral experience that uh, just a few people could ground the space in such a powerful way, in a way I hadn't experienced before. Could you talk at all about um, any of the elders that you um, that you invited and and what you see is the how it really to me supported the integration of trauma? Uh, and I'm curious if you could just speak to that. Yeah, the I think everybody you. Um, was gracious enough to to accept the invitation um, to to be with us, uh, including you, David. Would like contributed a a level of spaciousness and containment. It wasn't just about content and knowledge sharing. Um, you know, the, 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 I wouldn't like to you know pick anybody over another, but I, I suppose the the ending of the conference is what stood out for me. Um, but all that had gone before it allowed that to occur. And, and the two elders who, who stood out in those moments were um, Mark Williams, who many, many of your listeners will know as one of the founders of NBCT and uh, one of the, not only a great mind, but a wise, compassionate heart in equal measure. And um, a Zimbabwean medicine man, dreamer, healer, and peacemaker named Baba Mandanza who um, is one of those beings that moves from moment to moment, fully embodied and fully connected to everything and everyone. It's really quite remarkable to be in his presence and chuckles away um, with everything. And, and those two really encapsulated and embodied a quality of almost soothing the, the degree and the intensity of the pain. Um, in such a humble, and, and, I, and I mean it with, I, I would use that word with a capital H, a, a real humility uh, and uh, warmth and generosity of spirit and that was stand out and, um, and made the pain okay for what it was without ever losing sight that it was being held in a wider heart. They also allowed for difference, especially Mandazi, say, hey, it's okay. It's okay that you have this experience and you have that experience. We're not trying to collapse one experience into another. So those two really, I think, embodied something really uh, powerful in those moments where the friction and the tension was at its maximum. Of course, the exquisite beauty of that is that the healing was at a maximum at exactly the same time because it was held in a particular way. So I don't think we can, as we get to that maximal point of suffering, it's also the opportunity for the maximal point of, of healing at exactly the same moment. Can you share that story? It's, it's a memorable one for me at the end um, of what happened with, with Mark and Bob Mendoza. I, I, I probably everybody remembers a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll, maybe it would be good to just reconcile our memories of it. Um, 
there was a particularly powerful panel that preceded that, which was the final panel, which was five women uh, reflecting on the experience of mindfulness and, and African contemplative practice and the interface between uh, African contemplative traditions and the mindfulness, both the secular mindfulness and the Buddhist-based mindfulness. So there were five women sitting up there. It was, it was the most extraordinary conversation and it led subsequent to the panel to some very powerful emotional reactions around, around the, the bones that were sitting in the earth and the bones of um, African ancestry and and then um, one woman got really upset and she's a white Afrikaner. The Afrikaans people had you know, been in, in South Africa for a couple of hundred years and out of that lineage came apartheid. So um, she felt just like a sense of dismissed and it's only, there's only space in the earth for the African ancestors, not the African ancestors, and was crying and, um, and distressed. And, and so there was this sense of incredible tension which in, in this, again, this embodiment of the separation is like, you, I can be here and you can't, and you can't be here and I can, and, and that this battle for who can inhabit themselves and, and the space and the earth. So that was the, the that was the precedent, um, and that was that was held, and it was allowed to move through. And I don't. There were some very poignant offerings without anybody trying to resolve anything. And then we got to the end of the conference. And the end of the conference, the plan was anyways that Mark Williams was going to offer a summation of the four days or however long it was, the conference itself. And then Mandaza was going to offer a blessing just to end the conference. So the two of them were sitting up there on a plinth and I handed them the mic and, and Mark Williams paused for a moment and... Uh, I'm even moved to the edge of tears as I think of it now. And and he looked at Montanza. He said, "This is the man who needs to end this conference." And it was said with such humility and grace and honesty. It was not like I should or I need to. Or it was just a deep knowing and a and an authenticity. And he just simply handed the microphone over to Mandaza. And I think that, you know, at that moment, you know, everybody was just stunned. You know, Mark Williams is, is pretty up there on the pantheon of mindfulness-based everythings. And he just acted with this grace and, and, and humility and handed the mic. And what Mandaza then just proceeded to offer a blessing, you know, it, it felt more like a blessing than a meditation, but at that point it, the, the, the names just didn't matter anymore. And, and, he, and he just offered the soothing balm of words that came from the deepest truth within his own heart and spirit that, to use his exquisite phrase, um, be the ocean that refuses no river. Which is to say that that we all are made from the same essential quality, and when we stop resisting that, that when we know that anything is possible, 
And that moment in which he used, and he used different ways to describe that. He always uses nature and natural metaphor to translate his teaching. As he was infusing the space with this blessing, it was like, I felt like the soothing balm, heart just bursting open. And um, I could feel the room just come to land in a sense of, it's okay. There's so much pain and it's okay. And by the time he finished, there was this absolutely exquisite silence. That I'd love to hear your experience of, but it's almost impossible to put into words. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's how the conference ended. Yeah, my my memory, it's just moving to hear you talk about it was of him, as, as you're saying, uh, connecting uh, such a vast scope, like the aperture of what he was sharing. It felt both wide and deep and old. It was filled with grief as well. As you said, that panel, was it was, it was really infused. I mean, through the whole, these, these, these days together, but there was a lot of grief in the space. And I have a memory of, of many people crying and Mark, I remember Mark crying and Mandaza tears. And as you're saying, no need to cover over. It was actually a deep reverence for the emotion. And I realized I had never, this, this was a real aha moment for me around the relationship between mindfulness and trauma, which I want to keep coming back to this kind of question with you, but what's the relationship? Because I had never been in a collective space let's say, 100, 200 more people there, where there was a level of activation, emotional activation that I'd say had trauma content in, in the room that did not create uh, a need to skip out. There, it felt like there was enough practice, quite practically, in the room, both individually and collectively, to just to, to be... It's typical, it's the non-judgmental awareness just to bring a quality of, I am not going to push or pull this towards me, but just be in this with reverence. And I had never had that experience in a collective space. And, um, and it was really powerful. There was no need to tie it up in a bow. That was my memory of, it would have felt so violent actually to me and in colonial in many ways to need to, paper over or um, not make room for the trauma that was present or to make everything okay. So that was my memory of it. And it was a deep, it was a deep lesson. I mean, you entered into mindfulness, uh, I imagine in part around mindfulness-based stress reduction and mm. chronic pain. And it's mm. a core mm. principle of not needing to try to, mm. to change anything. So Maybe I'll just put it to you here. You know, here we are, a couple of years later. What, what in this moment would you, what, what would you see as the relationship between mindfulness and traumatic stress? To to increase our window of tolerance. Well, let's just say to increase our tolerance, our capacity to tolerate our painful experience at whatever level it's occurring. 
is significantly enhanced by dedicated practice, whether it's mindfulness or some equivalent to becoming awake and present in a particular way, which is infused with the quality of non-judgment. In fact, it's the only thing that, um, and, unless we are kind of cultivating a quality of presence and, and non-judgment, then it's not possible to increase the tolerance capacity. And in fact, it seems that the opposite seems to happen is uh, our intolerance increases. And uh, what, what an interesting word we talk about intolerance as a social ill uh, as in relation to, to gender and race in particular and difference. Um, but tolerance is, is its um, polarity. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm learning um, as I go that I need to be, uh, again, sensitive uh, working on the African continent as a man born in a white body. Uh, to talk exclusively about mindfulness, um, you know, it's such an interesting practice because it, you know, it came out of the teachings of Asia, and then moved east, and then moved west, and now it's moving south, and 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 each time it goes, this, wherever it lands, it's like, well, what about the indigenous wisdom? You know, um, this feels a bit colonial. It's like let's not impose mindfulness on anything. And, and I couldn't agree more. And so I, I think to approach this idea of becoming tolerant, um, to make us to make this conversation specifically about mindfulness and mindfulness-based approaches, at the same time as understanding that anything that raises this quality of presence and consciousness, um, which of course in, is inherently infused with wisdom and compassion, at its at its essence, is going to be not only helpful and necessary, but a prerequisite. The relationship I see is in, in the absence, the abs- trauma is the absence of presence. Well, <clears throat> whether it's micro-traumatization or macro-traumatization or both, the, the consequence of the, what Gabo Mate calls the wisdom of trauma is that miraculously the system finds a way to survive that experience and and the the um protective maneuvers of the nervous system of the mind and of our relational field are all in service of surviving whatever is occurring which is ultimately potentially fragmenting or or, um devastating or overwhelming And, and, and the thing that disappears with it is presence um, Winnicott had this f- phrase, um, Donald Winnicott, uh, he was a pediatrician before he became a child analyst, so he knew a lot about working with children at various levels. He, he spoke about um, a loss of uh, going on being as what, what we lose, a continuity of being, which is another way of saying a, a, an ongoing sense of presence. And in that moment in which we have a loss of our sense of our own being, we move into a place of reactivity, which is, we could also say, is traumatization. They're they're, they're the same things. So the reestablishment of presence in whichever practice one, you know, is drawn to enhance that inherent capacity is going to start to be the healing and cohering, soothing balm. And at the same time, I think we need to be really clear that this is 
not an idea of getting rid of anything because that's the wish in the mind. It's like, when I'm present, then this will not be here. This pain, this distress. This is where, in my experience, I'm curious, because I know you work one-to-one with people clinically, that in the, I had not heard that and I hadn't thought about trauma as the absence of presence, but in the awakening of presence when one is experiencing post-traumatic stress or PTSD, I think one awakens to what was too much to bear in that moment, awakens to the fragmentation. And in my experience, I'm curious how, when you're working with others, there needs to be a certain degree of scaffolding of respect for the factory loaded responses that protected the organism in that moment. So we could say, whether it's fight flight or just an immobility response or freeze. Again, I hadn't thought about it with presence, but say presence is removed. One continues on with one's life, comes to a healing path with some you know, desire to just not feel so stuck, to not be in so much pain. And as you just said, the awakening of presence doesn't disperse the pain as much as awakens one to the pain that's often locked in the psychobiology, which is such a powerful moment to, to wake up inside of a body that has been holding, I think, in, in a deep way. So anyway, that, this is getting into sort of the, the nuances of the individual work, but I'm wondering how you, when you're working with clients, does that map over to how you work or how, does, how do you think about it here? Hmm. Yeah, very much it maps over and um, it maps over to my own inner work. Um, it, there's a, I'm not sure that presence disappears. I think it just identity or identification with, with um, beliefs and, and emotions um, and patterns of defense are, are deeply consolidated. And then there's, we, we forget that, we take that to be who we are, you know, that phrase, that's just how I am, uh, is not true. It's how we've become, how we've adapted, how we've coped. So I think if we can come in with a, an, a and this is where, you know, your work and the work of Thomas Herbal and Gabor Mate and other luminaries and, and thought leaders have really reinforced a deep understanding that trauma and the traumatic responses are protective in a particular context. And now those very self-same patterns are, are restrictive, limiting and actually uh, in, accentuate suffering. So if we can come in with that view and immediately we come in with a view of there's nothing, you're not fundamentally flawed. That's in fact the, that's in fact the trauma itself that will create that message. So if I can come in and one-on-one work or group work or, or teaching or training practitioners or mindfulness-based teachers with this kind of um, original um, understanding. And then, firstly, it infuses the whole field with non-judgment. And and it respects the need to protect and defend, if you will. And it takes, and I've seen this again and again, it's like the level of courage it takes for a single moment to be with overwhelming or painful feeling and the inevitable mentalizing about myself, that just makes it worse. 
is extraordinary. And one needs tremendous courage to do this work. And, and so that, that, that's a, that I see in my individual psychotherapy work, in my own inner work and, and in teaching and training others. And I'm just, and it's so humbling when you, when you witness a courageous moment where it's like, it, it's, it's got nothing to do with me or anybody. It's just something arises in the human spirit or the human heart. Like, I'm, I'm they're ju- just able to be here with whatever is happening. And then the phrases, you know, that the wise ones tell us, like Pema Kodron, touch and go, or, or Peter Levine's titration, um, is, is so useful at a practical level. Uh, and and to, to remember that, you know, presencing and mindfulness are momentary, which doesn't mean a little wedge of time. It's actually the moment when it's a genuine presence. There's not really a lot of time involved, but it's just a touching into that authenticity of experience that has been lost. You're, you're naming to one of the most intimate moments that I ever ex- experienced, both personally in my work, but also having the honor to be with other people doing some form of healing work, often around trauma, is the combination that you just said of courage a certain container, almost like a psychobiological regulation from someone who's like, I'm here, I got you, we're in, we're in the deep end. And then this quality, this is where mindfulness to me feels just so powerfully synergistically connected to trauma work, is there is a quality of non-judgment. There is a, a deep, it's almost like an active non-doing that allows the what I'd say was what was the overwhelming protective response in the psychobiology to just complete. And as you just said, it's often not a ton of time. It could be a five second moment of terror moving through the body or of a push or a shove. But, but all the things that come together in that moment of the courage and the mind, the practice to allow, there's a quality to me of non-doing. It's simply letting life happen, which it's, it's so painful, the number of traumas that happen where we aren't able to shake, to cry, to move through, to let that degree of energy move through the system, which again makes me think of the collective conversation in even South Africa or uh, talking about history where uh, a community can't allow the grief to move through for good reason. It's just too much. And how do we do that together? So I'm so fascinated by both how this works with individuals in a clinical environment or any environment, up into a community or even a country. Well, you, you're naming something which I think is, is uh, fundamental, and that that is containment or, or a container, uh, which again that, that implies it's something static, but it, it, in which experience can be contained, whether that's an individual experience or a collective experience, um, and, and and as such, whatever's occurring in that can be co-regulated which I know that's one of the phrases that is used in, in Porges's polyvagal theory, um, and which, which I think is a fascinating and unbelievably useful model to think about. Um, to be able to co-regulate um, implies three things. One is that I, I need to be working within myself to, my, uh, to increase my capacity to tolerate discomfort and unpleasant experience. 
And I've got to uh, understand that whatever the person or the group I'm sitting in has varying degrees of that, um, but is trying to build that fitness, that capacity. And in the space that we share is the relational field where there's um, there two subjectivities living together in a mysterious way, intersubjective field as it's often called. And all of those elements together create the container. And, and the deeper, the, in any one of those different domains, the deeper the capacity to tolerate discomfort, distress, or unpleasant experience, the deeper the container, the wider the container. And of all the different modalities, and there are many, many, and I just, you know, again, of course, I'm biased to what has worked for me and what has compelled me, you know, not to mention, you know, the people who have influenced me and the research that is available around mindfulness, is that it's, it's a practice which is practical that allows one to dedicate oneself every day in particular ways to building that capacity so that the tolerance is a little bit more. It is by no means the only one, but it is one of the most well-established and useful ones. So the, the, the distress that is the very essence of the experience, the deep distress of traumatization, is in any given moment held or contained by the co-regulation, which is the relationship, whether it's the relationship with my own experience or with you or with the group. And then at some point, that just like happened at the conference, some, some other quality like starts to present itself, which is impossible to actually describe. It's like, it is me and you and the space within, but there's something else that is here that, I, that is ineffable. I would use that word to describe it, which is containing all of it. But uh, not to get too like, you know, swept away by that. It, it's, it's just to acknowledge that the levels of subtlety and depth that are possible can only start when we appreciate the, the importance of con containing what is occurring and what are the, the kind of um, requirements for containing. And mindfulness, like Kabat-Zinn's got a wonderful phrase. He says, you know, we want to be um, cultivating mindfulness like sewing your own parachute. You want to spend every day a little bit of time with your needle and thread and your cotton sewing your parachute. So when you actually jump out the plane, you've got something to hold you. Mm. And I love that metaphor. You know, we'd be frantically sewing our parachute as we falling from 10,000 feet. It would be um, calamitous. But probably more often the, the situation for, for many of us, yeah. the way we're just suddenly, if we don't have, <laughs> we're thrown in, thrown in as it were. We're thrown in, yeah. And, and, then, and we often then come to the conclusion that said the practice doesn't work. All oh, right. And... Um, yeah, but we can start there and start wherever we can. But it's a useful, it's a useful appreciation that it's useful to appreciate, should I say, that we can actually be intentional and deliberate about building this capacity. I had a question for you inside of this about the word tolerance. You've you've been this is opening me to a systems level conversation about tolerance. Because when you talked about intolerance being the opposite, that's so much easier for me to think about collective trauma or uh, history or, you know, bigger groups of people. It suddenly made the conversation quite social to me. The word tolerance has to me a, a, a bit of a quality of bearing it. 
of a heavy handed, um, well, you just need to be with it. <laughs> I don't know if this is true for you, but so it just, because when I hear you describe it, it actually feels quite uh, liberating and life affirming. But the, the word itself, the semantics of it have a bit of a overlay of like, just if you just be with it long enough. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm wondering oh, how yeah. you think about it. Yeah. It's it's all actually emerging kind of quite recently for me and, and, and even consolidating this very discussion. So it feels like a new emergence of, of thought as we speak, which I know always happens when we speak. So uh, a real gratitude for that is for clarifying. Um, yeah, the, the semantics, as you say, and that kind of feeling tone quality of the word is, it is really makes a big difference. It's, a, it's similar to me to the word acceptance, which is another word that is bandied around in spiritual circles, mindfulness circles, psychological circles, and you just, you know, just be accepting. And, and that feels like if you really can't lean into it, it's kind of got a quality of, uh, I'd like to actually defeat it. Well, there's nothing I can do. So I'll just accept it as it is. So we go, okay, yeah, it's just how it is. That, and, and that's acceptance. Um, so I, I, you know, again, this is just a play uh, with words, but if we, if we change the small A to a capital A and we change the small T to a capital T and, and start to feel into the possibilities that what I think is acceptance, if I look into the feeling tone quality of and what what is possible in terms of accepting, which has got nothing to do with trying to not feel or experience discomfort at all. In fact, it's one of the primary features that distinguishes a mindfulness-based approach from many other approaches. Because um, if you the, the roots of the of the practice and the tradition and the wisdom lineage is the four foundations of mindfulness and the root causes of suffering. So, and the understanding as soon as I try to change my experience into something different, I suffer more. So the, the tolerance with a capital T and the a, acceptance with a capital A has got a very similar kind of root um, down into the wisdom lineages that understand through clear seeing that the more I try and push or pull, the more I will suffer. And the ignorance is, again, capital I ignorance is not you're stupid. It's that we are all conditioned, all of us, to some degree, to a greatest or less degree, conditioned to ignore that truth because it really speaks to the very essence of who I am. And I'm going to have to like start like moving around and expanding my sense of identity. So that the tolerance is the capacity to really, in any given moment, be with an experience which is distressing, uncomfortable, painful. And that means I've got to let go or loosen my tight grip on the deeply held belief that the only way that I can tolerate and heal is to get rid of whatever is causing in this moment, this experience, which is usually at some level a feeling or a fixed thought. Where do you think love fits into all this? 
And I ask because I think of you as a really loving person, you know, when I've been around you. And I, and I love what you're saying about the capitalization. That's actually a different frame for me about even ignorance. I thought, oh, yeah, right, right. Cap, capital I ignorance, the way I hear you talking about it, there's a beneficent quality to that. Mm-hmm. Of course there's ignorance and and there's a remedy to it. But where do you, for in your from this, from what we've been talking about, where would you fit love into all this? Well, it's interesting to hear you, you see me as such a loving person. I'm a very loving person unless I'm not, <laughs> which is fairly often. To, to not be? Yeah, to not be. Fair enough. Um, and yeah, it, it does feel like um, the, the default to which I would like to return it because there are those moments of being in a, in a, in the, you know, some people call it flow. Um, I call it unselfconsciousness. Where, like my deep sense of concern about my own like position, mental position, physical position, relational position, is diminished or even if I'm fortunate enough, dissipates completely. And uh, I'm less like attached or, or identified with how I should be or how I need to be, which is essentially a protective maneuver and can just rest in whatever's emerging, just like in this conversation. And that for me, when I touch into those blessed moments or those blessed moments touch into me or I'm touched by, that feels like love. And when I, it's the, it's an, it love with, a, again, I'm going to capitalize. I guess you're talking about love with a capital L, which is the love which um, is the sustaining medium of the universe. It's like, it's it's what, if, if, if fish were swimming in water, we are swimming in love as human beings. And, and uh, our work is um, to wake up to the fact that we're not experiencing that. And, and that's not something that any research could... T- we can be reminded by wise, wise elders or wise people, from poets to authors to teachers to mystics. Um, and what is so beautiful about that possibility is that it's self-authenticated. So when I am touched into a moment of lovingness, I know it is lovingness because of the authenticity of that experience, not because somebody says it is or it isn't, or it shows something on my, a functional MRI, although that is interesting. So I think perhaps the whole work is about love. Mm. Like why bother with all this hard work? Mm-hmm. Why bother mm-hmm. developing courage to tolerate one more moment of a distressing, at times intensely distressing experience that we call trauma? I mean, beyond beyond the belief, the, the experience that people go through, it's really, as I'm sure you know, and we've sat in groups and with individuals, the, the degree to which traumatization has affected their life is just staggering. So why do this work? Why sit in it? Why cultivate mindfulness or presence or 
increase our, my, my or your our capacity for tolerance, if not to have increased moments of love, to, to love what is, as I think Byron Katie uses that phrase, and it, it's, not, it's not a romantic, woolly, wussy kind of love at all. Um, it's, there's a, just a freedom in that moment and a benevolence in that moment that was encapsulated by Mark Williams and Baba Mandaza just being in love, being, comma, in love. Not being in love as we think of it, but being, comma, pause, in love. And maybe that is, that is the deepest, deepest wish of every human being is to, is to know that in moments. In more moments, I'm reminded um, of another. Maybe we could start to end here, but uh, of uh, Pumla Kaboto Madikizela at the conference talking about. For those that don't know her work, she was on uh, one of the leaders or panel members of the Truth and Reconciliation process. And when I, I was such an honor to meet her. And for her to be there and talk about that process and show video of the process. And to me, it did feel imbued with love. There was a quality of, it was turning towards pain with love. And it was not at all, I mean, getting to meet her and talk to her a little bit about it. It was, it was as capital L, as you're saying, I think a desire for wholeness of, of healing and integration. And so it just makes me think of there's that fierce quality of love. Uh, that is so powerful in this work. So, mm. yeah, uh, just what comes up to me for me as you say that is, of course, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was held by a wise elder, Archbishop Tutu, who's just got this massive heart and non-judgment wherever he goes, and and you know he was the first one to break down weeping. He wasn't like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorted, I'll just hold this process. Not at all. His heart was profoundly moved in the pain of what was being shared. And he had the capacity and the wisdom to hold it, along with the other uh, exceptional people involved in that process. And the courage of those who were willing to kind of show up and be real. But, yeah, the TRC was a beautiful embodiment, and uh, sadly it didn't continue because we, you know, the truth and reconciliation is something that is at the heart of this work, isn't it? You know, oh, our that work, you think like ongoing, like it could ongoing. be an ongoing process. Yeah, yeah, we're looking to be truthful and honest and reconcile ourselves with yeah. each other. Yeah, and that's ongoing work. You know, we start a TRC and then it ends. It never ends. That's right. Anything else you want to share before we skip on out of here? The value of um, a really good conversation, which allows something new to emerge, it comes out the value of a, a really deeply heartfelt connection, which is what I, I've always felt with you. Um, and it feels like this conversation has, has deepened that, but has also allowed uh, some kind of um, sense of perspective, which I didn't actually have before the conversation, to be honest. So really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. 
Thanks, Simon. That's me too. Uh, that's what I, I'm hoping for in these conversations where people can just feel us both on our own edges and learning and growing. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for all your work. Will do. And thanks for having me, Dave. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Simon for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, you can go to my website at davidtrelevin.com where we have a lot of free resources. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions of people that you'd like us to speak with, please send them to our email at support at davidtrelevin.com. Thanks for being here. <laughs>